This is the Idea Time Show with Dr. Joe North, helping facilitators expand their creativity, confidence, and impact through the power of innovation in action. Gain confidence as a facilitator, confidence with the technology, and confidence with your content and event design. Tune in every week for practical tips, strategies, and interviews that will accelerate your personal and business success. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe North. Paul Slater from The Change Shed is today's podcast guest. Paul's an expert on change, culture, and transformation. And today we focus on how to build an innovative culture in your organisation. We talk about what an innovative culture is, what it means in practice. We talk about what it means for leaders. And also we speculate on the future of AI and its interaction with employee creativity. So a really interesting show. Hope you enjoy it. Look forward to hearing what you think. Paul, it's great to welcome you back to the podcast. For those people who haven't met you before, could you give a bit of an introduction to yourself? Hi, Joe. It's uh, great to be back on the podcast. Really delighted to be here today. So yeah, Paul Slater from The Change Shed. I help companies to innovate, change and grow so they can become more enjoyable, more valuable and more future-proof. So what sort of things do you get involved in? What are you working on? What's going on? So three streams probably is my work, Joe. So I do some corporate change and innovation work with large, complex global organisations. I also work here in the UK on one of the national programmes, which is about helping SME businesses to innovate, change and grow and to you know build their plans for the future and to create sustainable growth plans for those organisations. And additional to that, I have my own clients, which are either coaching clients or consultancy clients, a variety of projects ranging from culture with an archaeology charity right now through to working with an AI company on building their value before they exit. So why do you do what you do? My sort of interest for consultancy really was born when I was at university. I studied psychology and in my final year I managed to network to a small consultancy business working in the local brewery in Yorkshire in the UK and they were engaged in restructuring the teams of that organization using a tool called Belbin. And I got involved in the project on a voluntary basis, getting great work experience. And I realized actually helping out that small consultancy that I really liked this work. I enjoyed helping people. I loved helping to structure processes so that people could get better ideas and actually make them happen. So I got interested in consultancy in 1995 and joined one of the big consultancies out of university. And I've had a career, I guess, in and around consultancy and one or two other little diversions since then. Oh, brilliant. So it's interesting, isn't it, how we get to where we are? And, and today is all about building an innovative culture in yeah. organisations. And I know that's something you're really strong and experienced in. And let's start off by exploring why do organisations need or why should they even bother thinking about an innovative culture in the first place. So what is it and why bother? Two reasons, I think. Firstly, and you know, I'm twisting a saying here to get to this, but innovate or die, right, in the, the modern world and the change that we're all under. But I think why a culture of innovation? Well, it's so easy for innovation to fall on infertile ground and to not actually grow roots and, and actually take place. 
you know, unless we can encourage a culture of experimentation, a culture that allows people to take risks and learn, if we don't do that, then we're unlikely to get innovation in organisations. Yeah, I think you're right. The importance of innovation is absolutely huge. Customers' needs are always changing, aren't they? And therefore, organisations need to change, innovate or die, I say disrupt or or be disrupted. I sometimes think about a kind of conveyor belt of commoditisation, as I call it. So any sort of product or service that seems cutting edge at one time, if you think about consultancy, you think about Lean and Six Sigma and total quality management in the 80s, and then you think about digital and the birth of the first dot-com boom and bust you know, into the 90s. All of these things at one time were cutting edge, but they're on a conveyor belt that's slowly moving along towards something being much more commoditized and much less innovative as more and more people mm-hmm. get on board and get behind and start doing you know, some of the similar things. Yeah, it's right. I mean, I can remember when the iPad first came out, we're all over chat GPT. And actually being first out there, you know, people are able to catch up quicker, so it seems. So we've got chat GPT out there. Google have brought Bard out even faster than they might have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. Even with tools that you and I use when we're developing innovation culture and facilitating innovation sessions with organizations to get those light bulb moments you know Miro the, the virtual whiteboard tool has now got an AI integration that even turns questions into code it's just incredible isn't it you know I'm a little bit of a geek and I you know I absolutely love playing with these tools but playing with them with a purpose you know really to try and bring them to my clients my coaching my consultancy to improve the engagement process to get to benefits more quickly, which I think is increasingly one of those changing customer demands that you talked about earlier. You know, expectations are getting higher and higher for us in the world that we operate in, but also for our clients and in servicing their their customers. So we've just got to constantly keep pushing and trying to stay somewhere close to the leading edge if we can. How would you define the term innovative culture? Like, What is it? Clearly, I think there's two parts to that. So there's the innovation piece, which is about making new, potentially novel, certainly valuable changes. And I think those changes exist on a scale, you know, from perhaps more incremental or adaptive, we might say, in terms of their innovation through to those really seismic, game-changing, big-hitting changes that can happen in innovation, big big disruptive changes. So if that's the innovation side of the coin, what's the culture side of the coin? My, my favourite definition for culture, and take a moment to say sort of God rest his soul, Edgar Schein, who sadly passed away recently, you know, great writer and thinker in the space of organisational culture. He described it as the way we do things around here. So if we take those, you know, those two things and put them together, how can we, in the way we do things around here, create an environment that is fertile for ideas and experimentation to build, test and learn and to make those changes on that scale from adaptation through to step change at the other end. For me, it's also about tapping into that employee creativity and building the intellectual capital that the organisation has Absolutely. to make it stand out, make it you know competitive, differentiate all of those things. It's the whole sort of innovation ecosystem, isn't it, Joe? Because you know it's not just the human capital. And do people have, you know, the skills to apply those sort of creative techniques 
is the scaffolding there in the organization in terms of the resources, the time and space to allow people to learn from experiments, to test things out and to see, you know, what it is that really gets traction with their market, with their customers and so on. So it's getting that whole sort of system right in order to enable innovation to live and breathe, I think. And there's leadership capability to consider in all of that. I think there's one thing leading a steady state organisation where you're maintaining the status quo, but leading an organisation that's got to keep changing, evolving, keeping people engaged, the senior management responsibility for innovation and and making sure that those leadership structures are in place and working well with internal communications and connecting in. It's about leaders getting equipped to do that, isn't it? It is, it's about them being equipped. And I think, you know, in terms of innovation culture, it's also about how they model, you know, so do they walk the talk? Do they put their effort into, you know, enabling experimentation and learning? But it's also, I think, a lot about the questions that they ask. And I think this is really tied into culture quite heavily. Because when, for example, I worked with an organization who said, look, we're all about innovating to meet our customer needs and developing our service offering to really meet our customer needs. It was interesting because when you listen to the questions that senior leaders were asking, mainly they were asking their colleagues about what's the marginal gain here? What's the financial business case for this? How much money is there in this? But that seemed to be just slightly out of line somehow with them saying, you know, we want this culture of customer first in terms of our product and service innovation. And great leaders are also open to the answers as well and receptive to the answers because by asking great questions and doing that in the right way, sometimes some of the the answers might make us feel, ouch, you know, I think particularly when it comes from the multi-generational aspect that we have in organisations right mm. now. That diversity just typically breeds you know better quality ideas I think because we're just testing things through different lenses and different angles Mm. and if we're all exactly the same then we'd be much more likely to come out with a very narrow set of ideas you know we, we often talk about diverge and then converge you know creative processes and then funneling in you you won't get that sort of divergence without that diversity in the first place and it's diversity across the whole spectrum of, of neurodiversity, thinking styles, background, experience, disciplinary expertise, the whole, you know, multidisciplinary is really important. So I think I think we've, you know, hopefully set the scene for what is an innovative culture. And it all sounds great. So how on earth do we create this? And, and I see startups with some really funky approaches and they can recruit mm-hmm. from scratch and they can build something which aligns to a vision it can be more challenging for a long established organization that hasn't been used to this level of innovative thinking mm. and, you know creative engagement so both for a startup and then for an established organization what would the step-by-step processes be to building an innovative culture for leaders i think you already touched on one aspect in your introduction there I think it's really important that we've got reasonable clarity around vision you know where are we going here so you know if we're trying to put satellites in space you know you might expect our innovations typically to relate to those technologies and those applications of satellites in space and it's about that vision to be you know the premier launcher of commercial satellites around the world 
So some alignment to the vision. I think we have to create an environment where we have psychological safety. So an environment where people don't feel like they're going to get thrown under the bus for making suggestions, for coming up with ideas. You know, so we've, we've got to have that. I think that if you've got that psychological safety, I think that requires a degree of, of trust so that we can have some creative conflict in our organisation. So I think it's important to look at how do we manage those conversations that can feel a little bit edgy and uncomfortable, but do so in a way that actually the, the, the conflict that's created in those, the tensions that are created in those are incredibly productive. I think then, you know, so if that's a little bit about setting the scene, vision, psychological safety, establishing trust, we then probably need to have some process in place. So on occasion, I've worked with clients and we've talked about the idea of uh, an innovation pipeline. So how do we move from, you know, ideation and the fuzzy front end, coming up with great ideas to evaluating those, to thinking, what sort of impact can they have for our business? What value do they have? Are they sustainable? Um, and then what steps and stages do things need to go through in our organization? Now, that could be through really rapid build, test, and learn cycles in a startup, for example. In a larger organization, you know, for really significant and disruptive innovations, that might be more of a gated process that we need to move through. And I think as we move things through that process, we need to recognize, communicate and celebrate that we're achieving these great innovations. You know, we're, we're changing things for our for our customers, potentially even for the world. So I don't know if that gave you a, a series of steps, but certainly some of the ingredients yeah. in the recipe, shall we say. Yeah, definitely. And from my own doctoral research into innovation culture, how innovative a culture is, of course, depends on the perspective of the individual observing processing experiencing that culture so you know you and I could be in the same organization in the same team and perceive the innovativeness of that team quite mm -hmm. differently based on our own preferences which I think is is really interesting but there are some some themes coming through in in all sorts of research as well as my own which mm -hmm. is dynamism and appropriate risk taking as well as time to make ideas happen are three really important areas for organisations to take on board to create this perception that, firstly, we are an innovative culture, and secondly, that employees can contribute, you can tap into that employee creativity. It's really interesting that you mentioned appropriate levels of risk-taking. I'm just interested, maybe, if, would you be happy to sort of expand on that a little bit, Joe? Yeah, so it's about giving things a go. It's the whole concept of how organisations firstly interpret failure. How is it managed when that happens? And, and that connects in with your theme of that you were talking about around psychological safety. We've got to be able to know that we can have a go, give something a go, and, and that if it doesn't go to plan, we classify it as learning rather than a failure. It's more information it's data so that we can, if we choose to do so, we can take that data, we can take that learning and then go again. It's an investment in the next step rather than, I think people think you have an idea and then you go and implement it and you get it right the first time. That hardly ever happens in yes. real life. So that's sort of where I'm coming from, from risk and and dynamism and being able to move with it. And rather than, I was talking to, to somebody else um, around innovation and and she was saying it just takes so blooming long to make simple decisions to try 
small things that will cost us nothing, do no damage. How do I get these leaders to move forward on things? A big part of that, and this is probably coming back to classic change management, you know, what's in it for them? What's in it for the business? But what's in it for them personally? How does it help their agenda? How does it help them to achieve their objectives in the organisation? And that could be a balance, yes, of typical business objectives, you know, greater revenue, increased market share, etc. But for the individual, are they looking for legacy? You know, are they looking to be that person that makes their team's life easier? Do they want to change the world? You know, I don't know if we're allowed to name brands, but, you know, you think about, I'm going to, um, I don't work for them, by the way, but, you know, Patagonia and they really are, you know, if you think about that sort of Bain value pyramid, pushing right up in towards the top of the pyramid, you know, being life-changing and, and helping people to do the right and greener thing, I suppose, and yeah. giving away a lot of their profit to uh, worthy causes as well. Patagonia are great in terms of, I think they've given their, the business back to the planet, a really clear value proposition in terms of, look, don't buy stuff you don't need, don't throw stuff away before you've tried to mend it, we'll try and make great stuff with the whole life cycle in mind and you as a customer your end of the deal is that you try and look after it you bring it back to us to mend it you know and that between us we don't waste things that we look after the place we're in and you know one of their values is actually around activism and and it's because they're bold and because they're standing out and because they're different and putting their head above the parapet a little bit that is what's really contributing hugely to their success isn't it their tribe just aligns to their values so very very clearly Um, internally and externally so so that goes through to innovative culture inside as well and what you were saying about vision if everybody's on the same mission the same journey then it it really helps doesn't it so with innovative culture i think a lot of people think well, well a few things actually have popped up that have been prompted in my mind from the things that you've said one of those things is that sometimes people talk innovation and say they want it but they don't really they like the idea of it but not the mm. risk or the work how, how often have you bumped into an organization and somewhere in their values they've got innovation and then then actually if you pick under the surface a little bit it isn't happening for some reason mm. and i suspect a lot of the time that's going to be a cultural barrier so it's something about the way in which we behave and the behaviors that we accept so do we enable tryout and collaboration and you know innovation labs and space to make things work differently and better Mm. or or do we do we do we suppress that maybe not even intentionally but we have a process that is so bureaucratic and heavy to move an innovation forward that people just go do you know what deep sigh and shrug of the shoulders and and they're defeated and all of a sudden you know that innovation isn't going to happen because of these sorts of factors one of the biggest barriers from the surveys that I've done, but also from the people that I've worked with, the businesses that are aiming to innovate, really want to, really want to make a difference, have an innovative culture, is they say it's time. And I don't know if time's a real reason or not. Time's always constraint. It's always the thing in, you know, work grows to fill the available time, doesn't it? Well, innovation processes that you know, listeners to this podcast will be very familiar with, you know, using innovation sprints and design thinking, for example, you know, you can achieve an awful lot in a relatively short space of time, provided that, you know, you're prepared to set things going in the right direction 
and not let perfection get over, you know, to stop progress, essentially. That's one of the biggest challenges is this perception that we don't have time. So how can organisations get a cultural change so that innovative culture is just an innovation, it's in the DNA of the businesses? Because I think the the problem that some organisations have is that they see innovation as something that's separate and something they do on top of the day job rather than seeing innovation as being embedded within the day job. Absolutely. I think there's a number of concepts in business and organisations that fall into that camp. So, you know, quality used to be the job of the quality function, the quality department. I think businesses increasingly are recognising quality is everyone's challenge, you know, to in their internal processes and their customer-facing ones and, you know, the product service that they deliver. I don't think there's one silver bullet here, but for example, I think the first time that someone puts their head above the parapet and offers an idea, a change, you know, something that could become and blossom into an innovation, if they're encouraged and nurtured at that point, you know, they're 100% more likely to continue to innovate. If at that point, you know, they get sort of cut off below the knees, it's stamped down, or in some way they're made to think, you know, that was a silly idea or a a silly challenge. You know, that for me is just a cultural cycle that will suppress innovation and it will never be able to grow at the heart of the culture of the organisation. So we allow things to breathe and we're curious, I think. We're curious to say, yeah, okay, that's interesting. What if? And, you know, and ask questions in a more appreciative inquiry style than you know perhaps just saying you know than than, than using language that can close things down so it's that sort of openness at the start the first time we do things leading to things perpetuating celebrating our innovation connecting people to the impact that it has I think quite often you know in a manufacturing environment they might have a role which is around a number of components in something that becomes a much bigger product how do we help them to see that what they're doing and perhaps how they innovate in their process can have really big impacts how do we paint a picture of both the company's future their role in it and the impact that we have on our customers so that i can connect to that and see that what i do and what i innovate actually helps to achieve the vision and really helps our customers to to do great things as well it's the old sort of NASA example. It's about the person helping to keep NASA clean is helping put somebody on the moon. It's a very well-trodden story, isn't it, the NASA one? But, you know, I see it all the time in companies that are doing this well. So manufacturing company making componentry for heavy utilities, turbines in biomass generators, for example. So stuff going into big electricity utilities, but they're making some small components of that. But they've got the pictures of you know, those big plants and the exchanges and all of the things that effectively remind them that they're keeping the lights on here in in the UK. So it's enabling them to make that connection. Little things around um, cost and waste, for example, you know, I saw in one one organisation where they were trying to help people to understand, look, if we waste this much product in our process because, you know, we haven't really been careful enough about right first time, then that's going to be the equivalent of a nice pair of Nike, and I'm sure there's other brands available, trainers. You know, and everyone can think of a number when they think about the trainers that they've perhaps bought for their, you know, teenage kids or for themselves. You know, wasting this means you've just dropped £140 
hundred and $70, I guess, something along those lines. So it's visual cues and connections. I think actually if an organisation wants to start to build an innovative culture, if the leaders, maybe some leaders listening to this or our managers listening to this are thinking, you know, we could really do with being a lot more innovative. I feel like all the ideas come from me. And, you know, whenever I ask for any ideas, it's the same old, same old. I think a really good place to start with that is firstly around continuous improvement, even learning from past mistakes, mm. making those small changes, you know, and getting people just starting learning to think differently is a really good way in. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's all right saying, well, I want everybody to be more innovative. Come on, be more innovative. But what do you want them to be more innovative about? Give them some specific themes like in rail, I asked all of our 6,000 employees that we had all over the north to say, too many people are getting away without paying for their rail ticket, for their train ticket. Mm. And it's annoying the people who are paying for their train ticket. So you have this direct view of what's going on out there. You know, you know, you see things and know things, you know things really well. What can we do differently to reinforce that and get those people who aren't paying to either get them to pay or to catch them so that they do pay in the future, or they don't travel. And when you ask specific questions like that, the number and the quality of responses that you get back is, is so much better, rather than just saying, let's innovate everybody. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, as well as having those sort of themes or pushes or asking good questions, it's sometimes also about reframing the questions as well. There's a lovely article in the, the Harvard Business Review, and I think it's something along the lines of, you know, are we asking the right question? And it talks about the example, you might have heard this one, about an, an old but large apartment block. I think it's potentially New York, certainly somewhere in the States. And the residents of the apartment block are really quite upset because the, the one lift in the centre is dead slow and it takes forever to get around the building up and down, you know, back to their apartment and so on. So they started asking the question, how do we make the lift go faster? And they just ran into a brick wall because essentially, you know, they couldn't get the machinery changed. They couldn't afford it. They couldn't get into the, you know, the old infrastructure to do that. So they said, well, how can we ask a different question, essentially? And one of the questions that came out of that process, I believe, was, well, how can we make the weight a bit more palatable for people? So they put wall length mirrors down the sides of the elevator on every floor. And they found that they just got less complaints because people being people just you know checked out their tie or their, their, their hair or whatever it might be in the mirror and that made the weight just that little bit easier for them well it's productive so isn't it yeah they asked a different question and got to a different solution with that so you know can we reframe the question and use ideas like where is the problem happening when is the problem happening what is the magnitude of this who does it impact can we ask the anti-question sometimes? So, you know, if we really wanted to screw this up completely, what are the three things that we would need to do really well to make everything really mm. uh, fall apart and break apart? And then reverse that to try and get ideas on what we should do. So there's lots of great techniques around reframing and sort of restructuring the question, I think, which yeah. you can embed in an innovation culture by using them, promoting them, you know, making them easy for people to access People have a day job, you know, they're not sort of constantly thinking about different tools and techniques like using a crazy eight or something else to innovate. But if we can educate and enable that through, you know, point of need, easy to find, 
and maybe having some champions and, and individuals who can help the innovation process mm-hmm. in organisations, then that's another thing that can just help anchor innovation in the culture, I think. And some of those examples there, I hadn't heard of the example of the elevator and the waiting time before, so that's a really good one. It reminded me in a different way of an example I heard Steve Radar talk about at an event I ran. So he's the collaboration director for NASA. So he was talking about potato crisps or chips, you know, when they've been fried and they're being dried off and they're really thin and fragile, you know, thin slices of potato cooked and crispy. And the process of removing excess oil Mm. and and how that was done is, is they're on vibrating plates to shake, sort of shake the oil off. And of course, it's a fragile product. So a lot of the product was getting broken and wasted. Yeah. So the point Steve was making is that, you know, this isn't a context-specific question. If you go out to the world and say, how do you get this excess oil off a potato crisp without breaking it? It's very context-specific. So what they did instead was they reframed the question of how do you get an oil off a brittle material without damaging it? And they put that out there because they're thinking someone somewhere has solved this problem on something else and there might be something we can learn. And the answer came from a violinist. The idea which they put into practice commercially and actually used was around using acoustics and sound to get rid of the excess oil without damaging the crisps. Having an innovative culture where people are looking outside and including outside the sector they're in to see where these problems have been solved elsewhere. Absolutely, looking outside and, you know, potentially even looking at the natural world. You know, we know of all sorts of innovations, don't we, where people have looked at, Mm. um, you know, termites and how they build their termite nests. I'm probably using the wrong word, forgive me, but, you know, that can lead to advances in material science and, and, um, you know, looking at those sorts of processes but what, one of my favourite tall tales, I'm sure it's a tall tale, is the one about um, using grizzly bears to keep telecommunications live in Canada. I think the question was, you know, parts of Canada, very heavy snowfall, traditionally going back a few years. And, may, and, 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 and today, I think to an extent, you know, we've got these overland telephone wires, um, heavy amounts of snow causing breakages potentially. Innovation session, how can we fix this? Oh, well, lots of ideas. Let, let's. What about all the bears? Let's get the bears to shake the telegraph poles to get the snow to come down. Right. So what seems like a really silly idea at first, you know, oh, how do we get the bears to do it? We'll put something on the poles to, you know, entice them. Well, actually, then by applying that thought process, okay, we need vibration. So maybe we can overfly key lines that tend to break with a helicopter, you know, periodically after a heavy snowfall the acoustics, the vibration, bouncing the snow off the wire, like the oil off the crisp or chip. That's brilliant. And, you know, because I think people see innovative culture about sitting in brainstorming ideas and having wild and wacky ideas that nobody will ever do anything with. And, and sometimes it is about pushing those ideas and having fun with them and being playful mm-hmm. in order to then bring it back to something that is purposeful and can be used. But unless we stretch it, we end up with the same old, same old, don't we? You know, so, so some of the best ideas, the great ideas, are the ones that are pushed and become real light bulb moments. You know, there's a classic example I heard recently where the, the first question was, um, imagine we're trying to raise £100 for charity. Give me some ideas. 
you know, when people come up with great ideas like a cake sale or getting sponsored to do a walk or something like that. Mm. And then we make it in scale terms much, much bigger. And we say, right, well, how would we raise a million pounds for charity? And all of a sudden, the paradigm's completely shifted. So we're now talking about rock concerts and, you know, endorsement from celebrities and this kind of thing. So we've shifted the paradigm. So it's how we ask the question and how we stretch our thinking. So I'm a big fan of really being prepared to really, you know, go for that moonshot. And we know if we miss the moon, we're going to still land in the stars. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I think you're right. The, the questions we ask ourselves and the size of the question and the ambition of the question influences the ambition of the thinking as well. I loved what you said about language as well and appreciative inquiry. So appreciative inquiry for people who are listening to it, who are new to it. We've got a whole video and, and blog on that. So the videos on the YouTube channel the articles on the Big Bang Partnership website uh, on the blogs. You can just search appreciative inquiry. It's inquiry with an eye. It's all about building on the positive, looking because our efforts go where we focus most. So if we focus on positive and recreating the positive, we'll therefore get more positive outcomes because that's the direction we're pushing in. And the number of times I hear the word yes, or the words yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, when in an ideation session. And in fact, I was working with a, a, a team in Europe and I highlighted this to, to one of the senior managers in the team. And then every time he said yes, but for the rest of the day, it was almost like our antennae were, were tuned into it. And it's about being really mindful of our language and conscious yes. of what we're saying and the impact that has not just on the people that we're talking to, but how it can actually connect and jar with, depending on where we go, our own thinking and the way our own brain works. Because our brain responds to what we tell ourselves, right? We can use language that opens and we can use language that closes. So I like how might we, because the word might opens up to possibilities and opportunities. You know, how should we implies a value judgment. You know, is this the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of a sudden, that's that's closing down opportunities. And I think these are cultural issues, aren't they, Joe? Because it's it's the way we do things around here. It's the way we talk around here. It's the way we feedback constructively, hopefully, to each other when we see people yes butting and closing down rather than yes anding and opening up. Yeah, I mean, I was able to do that because it's in a specific learning environment where that's what we were there to do was to help build a culture and lead a culture that that is more innovative and more inclusive Mm. and more you know engaging to develop those ideas but uh, you know and I've just butted then so it's it's, you know we all say these things we all do these things I think I'm probably saying it because we're talking about it it's it's so natural isn't it as you say being mindful being conscious and perhaps not letting that sort of uh, stop the progress that we can make when we're when we're sharing ideas what are some of the biggest success stories that you have directly been involved with in your consultancy practice? I think that really depends on how you sort of judge success, Joe. So, you know, in, in my time, I've been involved in perhaps some of the, the biggest, you know, world firsts, um, a world first in terms of frontline culture change and training within a, a governmental department in the UK a world first in terms of digital within the NHS. 
in fairness, wasn't exactly the success story I might be painting it to 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 be. So I won't name names, but people could probably work out if they're from the UK which uh, consultancy that was that was involving. I've worked recently with a a charity. Um, they work in the the, the world of of uh, of his, history and uh, you know historical preservation and, and the environment. And that work was really around establishing with them, you know, what are the behaviours that we want to see in our organisation as we move into the future? Um, part of that was certainly around innovation in terms of their member offer, which is, you know, something that charities are continuously having to think about. But really the focus was more on the sort of culture behaviour side, yeah. which led us into talking about how do we actually stitch culture and behaviour together with um, performance and how we support performance and how we support development in our organisations. And we allowed, I guess, that process to evolve. Um, and the feedback at the end, we just closed the project a couple of weeks back. And the feedback was, you know, this has been transformational. It's so different and so much better to what we used to do yeah. uh, in the past. So that, that's one that, you know, I feel particularly proud of. Yeah, That's fantastic. We mentioned chat GPT earlier. So how do you think AI is going to impact how organisations work and what does that mean for innovative culture? So I view it as a tool that augments humans and I think it's, it has the possibility of enabling greater and faster innovation in organisations. Um, Simple examples. So I guess there's places where we can sync our time that can now be accelerated by using AI, giving us more time and space to innovate. So what sort of things can AI help us do to free us up to do other things What in, in the world of work? So one of my clients, for example, is selling their AI solution to asset managers so that asset managers can operate with precision at scale. What does that mean? Once upon a time, if they were managing, say, 50 assets, you know, 50 companies, and they were looking into the details and the risks around those companies, you know, that was really as much as they could manage. With AI looking at global sentiment, um, potential risk, and, you know, millions of key financials, almost instantaneously, they can scale that to actually operate at a much higher level. So 500 companies, say, rather than 50. So they've 10 times, 10x, to use the trendy phrase, you know, their capability in terms of how much work they can do. So I just wonder if, particularly in service industries, for example, you know, we can 10x our output so we can serve more customers in a better way, but in a way that's still very much augmented by the AI and controlled yeah. by the human in that process. I think that's great. And what I would add to that is that on the way, it's important to ensure that the AI is appropriate. So mm. I'm, I'm thinking about things like algorithmic bias and that the AI is informing and making decisions or informing decisions on a way that is fair, equitable, inclusive, and so on. I think because algorithms have got some sort of human, you know, humans start this stuff, right? Yeah. And humans have, we have all sorts of bias. But even I was talking to somebody whose daughter had had exam results in the COVID period and couldn't sit the exam. And, mm -hmm. and therefore, 
the algorithm had calculated what the final grade would be based on not just the previous work that the young person had done and attendance and those sorts of things. So all those things were factored in, but things like the postcode and external factors that were outside of that individual. I can see that that is relevant and I can also see that it's also potentially very unfair. The AI learns from the rules that we plug into it. Yeah. You know, we still have a moral obligation to to do the right things there, to be conscious of all of the potential cognitive biases that we have as humans and they you know there are many of them Mm. hundreds I think potentially Mm. what I do think is statement of the very obvious AI is here to stay it's only going to become more prevalent more integrated into business processes as we move forward we can either view it as a tool to help create better lives and better products and services for people or we can view it as a threat to humanity as you know many famous writers and and public figures I've already started to alert us to. So, you know, I think we have to be really cautious here and beware the unintended consequences, Mm. particularly for small companies, small companies in a digital space. My belief um, is that unless they have ways to leverage AI and potentially even integrate AI into their product in the way that I know some of the sort of objectives and key results management systems out there are now using AI to generate objectives and key results or KPIs. So we're seeing increasing application. And if you want to be future-proof as a small business, particularly, I think then you've got to be integrated. You've got to look at how you can integrate. Especially tech companies, tech companies that uh, aren't working with AI in some way or developing AI solutions certainly need to catch up so I mean to be honest AI has been with us for a very long time it's inbuilt into so many things that that we use I think what chat GPT has done is it's made it accessible so people can start to see what they can do with it rather than being on the receiving end of the bank that makes the mortgage decision based on AI or experiencing Facebook through what Facebook choose to present to us through their AI and so on. It's suddenly become available to all of us for free and we can see how we can use it. And it's about taking those things, and not resisting them, integrating them into a culture of innovation, creating an innovative corporate culture or innovative small business culture and working with it but doing it in a conscious mindful way yeah it's asking another big question of businesses in the sense that they've you know they've had to tackle this question of social media and you know do we have policies and guidelines around what people do and don't say and how that reflects on our organization high profile case in the uk recently of course with a sports presenter making political comments through twitter and you know, that, that that sort of washing out into quite a, a national yeah. debate, really. So I think organisations, like they have with social media and other technologies, are going to have to think, okay, so AI is here, it's accessible. When we leverage it, how do we leverage it? Um, do we need to, you know, reference that we've used chat GPT in, in these things? That's interesting. I think I saw on LinkedIn recently someone had written a sort of short story, but in quite a fun way they'd use chat gpt to do it all you know and they they owned up to it and said but you know actually it's a pretty good read 
I follow someone who helps authors get successful with their books and he'd got an AI book cover that AI had designed. Who knows where it will go? I'm sure it will just keep evolving at pace. Mm. As organisations, everybody needs to be ready for that and think about how they can use it and do so in the right way. Paul, this has been absolutely amazing as always. I mean, we could talk, I think we could talk for hours. Where can people find you and connect with you? I'm I'm sure listening in, there'll be people who want to sort of explore some of these themes a bit more with you. So yeah. where where do you hang out? Probably the easiest way to get hold of me, given time zone differences and everything else, is just via my email address. So that's uh, paul at thechangeshed.com. Yeah. LinkedIn, really great place to engage and would love to engage over LinkedIn. And, and uh, you can even drop into my website, check out a couple of the videos. There's some health checks on there around change and having a future-proof culture that you can uh, do for free and get some, you know, some sort of instant feedback that might be interesting and useful. So check out the website through one of those uh, three channels. Paul, as always, it's been amazing talking to you and some really good food for thought and tips as well. So thank you very, very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Idea Time Show, brought to you by Dr. Joe North. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and access more completely free resources at bigbangpartnership.co.uk forward slash resources. We'll see you next time.